Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I'm joined by a man who literally needs no introduction to the Decouple audience. Mr. Mark Nelson, I thought rather than um, running through your accolades, Mark, you know, all your educational accomplishments, I'd just run through your discography here at Decouple. So we have... Decouple. Uh, what, uh, actually, Chris, it's the same thing. That is my accomplishments, really. I mean, thank you for sharing that opinion. But the discography, for those who have not heard Mark here, existing versus imaginary nuclear, Russian gas and the German war on nuclear, trouble in Texas, the Russian atom, what's happening at Taishan, what went wrong at Vogel a natural gas masterclass. And now a follow-up on that most recent episode. Um, you kind of hinted at that um, in uh, during that episode, Mark, and um, you mentioned sort of once you were back on this side of the pond, back from uh, your latest European ex- excursion, which I understand included Estonia, Germany, Belgium, and Netherlands, um, that you'd have some more juicy material for us. Um, obviously, the energy situation in Europe is moving very quickly, um, and I'm eager to cover it. Um, I tend to... Um, get pretty excited, uh, maybe a little um, naively. Um, you know, I'm already seeing a, a nuclear renaissance coming as uh, as these natural gas prices go insane and, and we see what a fragile house of cards, the world adopting fatal trifecta grids all at the same time um, is. Um, so I'm, I'm bringing you back, Mark, to uh, to bring your more uh, nuanced analysis to the situation and, and catch us up just on what's been happening in the last. Is the nuance two- that you bring me back extra fast whenever ever something goes seriously wrong? Pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> so, Mark Nelson, welcome back. Thanks, Chris. Uh, great to be back here. It means that somebody is in big trouble somewhere. Let's get to the bottom of it. <laughs> pretty much, right? We had Texas, Taishan. Here we go again. Europe. Um, so, yeah, Mark, catch catch me up. Um, where have you been? And uh, what are what are some of your reflections on on what's happening right now? I mean, the UK has, has really been in the news. Um, I heard some fertilizer plants got shut down. Brexit's not helping the situation. But, yeah, where do you want to start? Well, I I went to Europe and went out to what's got to be one of the most gorgeous nuclear plants in the world, Gundremagen. Um, it's the only nuclear plant I've seen in the world where the containment the containment structures look exactly like uh, jet puffed marshmallows, and right. I think that's really <laughs> special. Um, anyway, at Gundremagen, I stood out there in the sun as a bunch of really lovely German pro nuclear activists gave speeches to each other, assuring everyone that nuclear is good and that we shouldn't shut down nuclear. Um, it was both incredibly uh, inspiring and also a little bit troubling because we were talking to ourselves in an empty parking lot with the only sign of life from outside of our circle of concern being the Bavarian public broadcaster who was there to, well, they didn't want to interview me. They only interview German speakers. Uh, so they had they had no interest in talking to me, um, and they didn't even want to work with a translator. But they did get lots of interviews of the activists who were there trying to save Gundrimigan. The reason I bring this up on your show is because that plant, that reactor, is a colossal, like 1.3 or 1.4 gigawatts, and it would need to be 100% replaced with coal and gas, both of whose prices have gone to levels that have just not been seen before. 
in Europe. How did people not see this this storm coming? Like I'm just uh, things happen in the world, obviously, right? There's unexpected things. COVID was unexpected, but on the energy front, I'm just really baffled at how and why Europe has allowed itself to be caught with its pants down here. Honestly, experts just believed their own bullshit and they trusted the markets when it looked as if the gas and coal were going away. It felt good. They had a very lucky collision of, I mean, in in hindsight, they had a lucky combination of factors that made it appear like they were actually doing an energy transition. They actually believed that they were doing an energy transition by getting hooked up to the weather. They actually believe that. People have published entire PhDs on it. People have established careers around it over the last 15 years. Thank goodness those people should be, I mean, I'd, I'd like to think they should be blown out of the water this, this winter and we should be able to have proper discussions about uh, energy, energy security. And I think the word energy, the phrase energy transition is so ruined at this point that we should be able to retire it. But the fact is, what people are discovering is there's a reason we built coal and gas plants. We aren't evil. We aren't stupid. We don't hate nature as a species. It's that it provided absolutely irreplaceable advantages to do so. And we did not replace those advantages with another system that provided the same thing. We attacked the productive basis of the gas and coal I, which again, from an environmental perspective, I get it. I understand. It's why I've dedicated my career, despite coming from an oil and gas family, coming from oil and gas con- country. There's a reason why I've de- dedicated my career to replacing oil and gas. It's because of the environmental consequences, um, and because of it, honestly, it's not very equitable for some regions to only be able to produce. Uh, natural gas and and sell it, and others to get to burn it or or worse to be cut off from it if they lose access to supplies that just gets to me a little bit and i figured that nuclear energy well by providing any region any area of the world with the ability to get as much energy as they wanted i thought that was the correct career path but it was because it replaces what gas and coal offered us which is liberation from want liberation from drudgery And those two things are going to return to Europe this winter. And I mean, in in terms of the failure to see this coming, this this ripples out beyond Europe. It's not the only place in the world that's wrestling with these historically high natural gas prices. I understand Asia's in a lot of trouble. I had a quote from, uh, what is it, the Chinese vice premier Han Zheng. He has apparently told state-owned energy companies to get hold of supplies of natural gas at all costs. I mean, everyone's in a scramble right now. Nobody, nobody in the UK is able to talk like that in a, in a ministry. There's a huge asymmetry going on where there are countries where the entire state is going to turn towards securing energy supplies at any cost. And then in the UK where it's like, well, if we get outbid, I guess that's that. Or, well, the French cut off supplies of gas to us. I guess that's just the way it goes. Like this is, this is the attitude that the, that the Brits have had. Now, they are emergent. They are basically rushing straight into a massive, crazy nuclear program. That's great. Um, Great to see they're just going to go from being incapable of just copying Hinkley Point C two EPRs over to Sizewell. Over the last two or three years, we've heard just 
words about this around and around in circle and nothing's occurred. Now they're going to want to do like three parallel new nuclear programs all at once um, because they don't have gas now. It's just the height of irresponsibility and short-sightedness. You, I, I want to return to this. How did we not see it coming? Well, over there, here's another asymmetry. This is the central one. Not having enough electricity is quite close for modern society to not having enough oxygen. If somebody gets you set up with a supply of oxygen and you, can't, you have to produce it, and they say, well, how about we charge you a little bit extra and we have 15% more oxygen than you need? And you say, that's ridiculous. I'd like to save on my, the, the 3% of my society, 3% of my budget. Let's say Chris has an oxygen budget and it's only 3% of your income. And you're like, why don't we shave that down a little bit? Why don't we just save a little on oxygen? And you cut that down to a 5% margin. And then something goes wrong um, and you, and you can't quite get it. And you're down to 95% of the oxygen you need. You see why you might be willing to just waste a lot of money to pay 5% of your income for oxygen instead of 3% have tons of extra. Well, for professionals in the energy space, they've spent most of their careers excoriating utilities and ministers and anybody will listen for having too much electricity, too many power plants. They want competitive markets to not waste resources having too much supply. AKA reliability. I've heard, you know, for the first couple of years, um, I would say probably from 2012 when I started um, looking at nuclear energy all the way till about 2017 or 18, you used to hear energy experts describe France as a failure because they have too many nuclear reactors. They have too much energy. They said that in France. They said it out of France. Whenever you brought up France, they're like, France is so inefficient. They've got more power than they need. And that was the attitude that every that in every country, in every sector, people were always trying to wrest control from central planners on the electricity supply and either break up control, decentralize control, make it to where almost nobody would build almost any type of power plant. That made it easier for them in their minds to get a lot of wind and solar built because you don't need some big state apparatus or some big um, planning bureau to do wind and solar, a tiny little fly-by-night entity can build wind and solar. It's just not, it's just not um, a serious energy for high-skilled people. It's just it's, it's easy to slap up, basically, as long as you can make sure that people don't complain. You just slap it up, right? But you need to get a big utility out of the way. You need to get ministries out of the way. You need to get grid operators out of the way because anyone left holding the bag on the other end of wind and solar going off to zero on their own schedule gets freaked out and they demand extra, extra power lines. They demand extra batteries and storage. They really just make life hard for those trying to add, just simply add renewable energy because they say this, we are having to get all the downside. We are having to take on all the risk of finding out where energy comes from if there's not solar and wind. As solar and wind got cheaper to add, the deficits of power when it underperformed became more and more and more dangerous. While there was a surplus of natural gas from a natural up and down of the investment cycle, it didn't matter. 
while the the coal plants could absorb the losses or couldn't and then just closed and went out of business, policymakers were able to look the other way or worse, celebrate themselves with awards, with climate conferences, with ceremonies, with charts showing how, and look, Chris, you're not wrong to fight for cleaner air. You're not wrong to fight for the shutdown of coal. But there is no comparison to what carnage you're going to see as a doctor from pollution and coal dust and uh, shortening lives on one hand to not having enough electricity on the other. That is one of the, that is a ferocious asymmetry. So yeah, so let's let's expand on that because you've kind of compared electricity to oxygen here, absolutely vital for life. Maybe this is um, you know too obvious, but let's talk about you know some of the ripple down effects of expensive energy and expensive gas that we're seeing right now. Um, I, I heard again about these fertilizer plants having to shut down because they use a lot of natural gas in their processes, just too expensive. Presumably, that's going to ripple down through the agricultural world if they can't get those plants back up. What What are some of the other impacts that you foresee coming from this uh, this energy shock, this uh, self imposed energy shock? So the first thing I'd want to say is I am not in the business, nor do I want to be in the business of predicting major disasters and exactly what caused them and where the asteroid is going to hit. I get I take a lot of shit from. And, and in my opinion, well-meaning people like Simon Holmes Accord for he calls me a prophet. He says I'm I'm trying to predict and I'm always doomsaying and I'm never saying like anything useful because we always find a way with our ingenuity to get through. I don't know what combination of things will deal potentially fatal blows to European countries or their energy systems. I do know that we've been getting more and more and more dangerous. For, for a decade. I went to a lecture in 2013. A gentleman who was, this, who was the chief executive of Ofgem, that's the Office of Gas and Electricity Markets in the UK. He comes to this tiny little room and says, hey, um, uh, we, we don't have enough energy and it's going to get worse every winter. And then, you know, it's just a couple of us students and maybe one or two um, professors sitting around and we're like, oh, yeah, why don't we ask questions of the chief executive of the Office of Gas and Energy Markets of the UK, who's in an who has an audience of 20 people in a little room at night in the winter. And let's just ask him questions that will really get down to how we not run out of energy like the you the setting was so unfit for the for the horror of the message we are hearing, he was basically saying, there's not enough gas storage. We've converted almost all of our reliable electricity supply to need gas, but almost all of the heating supply needs gas. We're only building power that may go away for weeks at a time. And we're making up for it instead of building our own power plants. We're building interconnections with other countries that may or may not decide to cut us off to zero at any moment if they feel their supplies are threatened. You want interconnecting things, how about this? People at minimum need water, at minimum need to eat, and electronics are pretty important. Hard to imagine how we even coordinate life in a modern country like the UK without the phones working. Many grocery chains do have backup power sources that they have built to deal with their fear of the intermittency and the lack of reliability of supply of the electricity system of the UK, many of these do demand the same fuel sources that are in short supply. 
So that that's not quite truly independent, even though they may have more control and more ability to secure uh, f- fuel supplies to keep refrigerated sections of grocery chains going, the lights on, the tills running to be able to continue to sell food. Now, I had no idea that the UK was struggling so much with lorries, with heavy trucks, and therefore with uh, fossil fuel products, liquid products, namely gasoline, petrol. Uh, That came as a shock, which means you probably shouldn't look to me to get the full range of what could go wrong. I was not prepared to see a run on gasoline. And I just heard from a gentleman living in Cambridge who said yesterday that it has been weeks since Cambridge city areas had uh, just uh, petrol for people to get when they drive up. So we, we get a preview of what could be happening in terms of initial effects from the, the shutdowns you've heard of, and also from the list of restrictions that China has put on different um, different provinces and different cities. Uh, we also can take some clue from the severe energy crises that induced France to build nuclear in the first place. So this was also the crises that induced uh, two big changes in the UK, building a lot more coal plants, building another wave of reactors, the AGRs, and also... Uh, expanding exploration for natural gas and oil in the North Sea. It turns out that France drew a winning hand and the UK drew a losing hand in the reaction to that energy crisis. Here's some of the, here's some of the outcomes for people, though. There will be rotating days on, days off for either industrial customers or offices. Um, in some ways, some types of blows may be cushioned because we've already escaped back to our homes for a lot of the professional class, at least, in COVID. However, this does not necessarily save on power because you have divided up energy demand into millions of little homes, offices, instead of a few concentrated larger offices. UK homes tend to be very leaky, poorly insulated, and inefficient in their electricity usage, It's been countered by just accepting higher levels of discomfort across British society. Brits put up with with apartment conditions that Russians would never tolerate, or at least I have to I have to cross my fingers a little. At least not in the big cities that I've that I've spent my uh, my time in in Russia. Um, Brits just expect to be slightly damp, slightly slightly moist, and slightly chilly. That's just what they think (laughs) housing stock is like. Um, It's just that that has been based on this sort of glut of energy that they've had. The Norwegians, with obviously a very different society, a very different um, per capita production of fossil fuels, admittedly, stocked up on everything they could buy and purchase, any company, any shares of, of real estate, whatever they could buy outside of Norway, while being very disciplined at not, at just socking away as much of the savings they could from their oil and gas. And they have the ability to expand oil and gas better because all the political parties are just kind of like, well, or at least the ones that matter in Norway are just kind of kind of quietly, just kind of going to keep drilling. Well, in, in the UK, you might say they've believed their own bullshit. They believed that they can just not drill, not mine, set up wind turbines and not build nuclear, and it would all last. It would all work. Because that was the sort of extreme short-term thinking following the marketing of those various industries that won that that default energy contest. 
And that means they're just going to be in the worst position. I have no, I don't want to even speculate what we're going to see when we go to COP26, Chris. It could be really grim. We could be unwelcome symbols of an elite British society that brings the world to London and the world to Glasgow, but can't even feed its own. You just need to be ready for that. We haven't seen a Britain in modern times that just didn't have enough of stuff in the general. And I, I don't know. I don't want to speculate what the ties are. Let me talk about the effects that we've seen in the U.S. in oil and gas from the ultra-high prices. Sure, go ahead. Almost nothing. There's almost no drilling going on. Right. And I mean, in the, UK, in the, in the EU, I, I feel like there's this tension between you know, the commitments to climate action, high carbon prices, et cetera, um, and really the need for more of this fundamental product, which, which makes the whole sort of house of cards, Rube Goldberg machine work that backs it all up. Um, and so either, you know, in the mid to long term, you're going to get a rejection of this ambitious climate action. And, you know, Roger Piltke, I think, has this uh, iron law, you know, where he talks about in the end, people will vote with their, you know, vote for energy reliability um, over climate. Climate is kind of a luxury. And I think you, you see that pattern throughout the world, that the countries that are the most climate concerned are the wealthiest and the most able to to experiment. Um, but, but it was I, being I, subsidized. It was being subsidized by decisions, hard decisions and big investments made by the previous generation of politicians and business leaders. Uh, honestly, this might be a moment to bring up something like, I don't know, I'm going to bring up pyramids near the end of our time. Right now, I want to, yeah, I, it always it always comes back to um, Old Kingdom Egyptian pyramids with Mark on your podcast, unfortunately. But before that, I want to talk about E-R-O-E-I, energy return on energy invested. This is a concept that pro-nuclear people latched onto very rapidly because when that Weisbach paper came out in 2013 or 14 or 15, it just seemed like the perfect way we could go gotcha with numbers and totally just sock it to the uh, the renewables guys. And then meanwhile, they looked at it, tried to figure out ways that EREI didn't matter. There was, an, an, again, more arguments with Simon. The reason why I bring up Simon is because he's somebody I do actually respect a lot. I do talk to, and he provides some of the smartest versions of what we face when we talk to other energy experts that are not convinced about nuclear. So Simon's point that he's made is that if there's any, essentially this, if there's any energy returned over whatever time period and whatever shape function, like when the energy is coming, that's the same as there being energy payback that's good enough for society. Maybe you just grow a little slower or maybe you, maybe you just do a bigger volume of effort where everybody's just doing a little bit more to get that little smaller payback per unit of effort you put in. But I think this energy crisis is going to reveal that there are breaking points, there are transition points, there are phase changes where if you didn't get a big enough return on energy secured in the past, you may not be able to provide the services that let you transition to the lower energy return on energy invested without some kind of collapse downwards to a general lower standard of living and an inability to rebuild back up what it is you just lost which in our case in Europe it if this is a if this is a sea change if this isn't something where um 
a sudden collapse in demand is able to give us regrouping time and then we have enough energy and we can sort of expand expand what expand drilling in the north sea get italy back into in, into drilling for hydrocarbons in its own territory like are we going to are we going to see germany open new lignite mines this is the these are the sources that there's so much demand for that the numbers the record prices being paid for anyone who's got a chunk of lignite to go anyone who's got coal to spare any drop of oil any bit of gas people are going to do anything to get a hold of fossil fuels in a functioning market for energy that would indicate a colossal amount of capital tens of billions 100 billion euros should flood into fossil fuels if we listen to the market prices that are high right and yet what investor would dare in the eu invest in something like that i mean i don't have an answer there i'm lucky to be in a country that's just rich on energy even though we we uh it's going to be more expensive for a while it's still a what a quarter of gas is a quarter of the price of that in europe but there's no actual outcome there's no way to put our money into stuff to avoid what's just happening except doing a new nuclear program now and that won't be ready until 3 4 5 6 7 8 years depending on whether your country already has nuclear plants that can be operated or if you have to build from scratch right i mean it seems like the winners here are are the state owned uh, enterprises uh, state owned oil and gas companies you mean that can um, buy the assets of the former european held or yeah I guess, or maybe even accept the capital uh, investments from from those countries in some shady. <laughs> back I mean, door. that's awkward. That was, I mean, a particularly interesting example of an attempt for this to happen has been in the uh, selling off of some portion of going public of some portion of like the of Saudi Aramco, where the the issues are just so weird. Do do shareholders honestly believe they're going to be prioritized over the citizens of the kingdom? I, so even there, I don't know what kind of solution that is. Like, is, are, is, is European capital going to flood into Russia to make sure they produce all the oil and gas that's not supposed to come from Europe itself anymore? I mean, if we're, if we're giving capital to Russia, if that's the game, then, then I know which side of the side of Moscow Kremlin I want to go to. I want to go for the Rose Atom offices. You know, the good shit. The stuff where Ro Russia could build you a reactor and it's still yours. Right. That's, yeah, that's quite the contrast. <laughs> you got two pretty stark and, options. You know, something else I want to bring up. The U.S. was having to raise this issue in Europe because Europeans are no longer competent, it seems, to look after their own energy issues. I mean, sorry, that's very provocative, and I'm going to make a lot of enemies. Let me walk that back a little. It's not clear that Europe knows how to expand energy production now, only reduce it. I've been very worried the past few years and knew I was not going to make any friends if I talked more loudly about why I was so disturbed about the UK getting so much of its advancement on low carbon energy by simply not having coal anymore, but not replacing it with much at all, just having a collapsing energy supply. I was like, this doesn't feel right. It takes energy to make a good life. It takes energy to heat. And I know Britain. Britain wasn't like souping up the houses to German standards. That's not the British way. They just have a bit of leakiness. Just put on, you put on another tea kettle. 
You have a you have you have tea at 4 p.m. That that helps give you warmth in your heart. You go down the pub and you you sing with friends and then you come back and you're warm all night, you know? You don't really like insulate houses or make it not leak anymore, stuff like that. That's not the British way. So when I saw the the electricity consumption just fall and fall and fall. And, you know, I got to say, it's conservatives who are in power, conservative government saying, see, we are climate leaders. We don't have that pesky energy supply that other countries do. It didn't feel good, especially because, as I can't, I never get tired of saying, the British reactors are the only ones on planet Earth that cannot be operated, as far as we can tell, indefinitely. Only the British reactors cannot be upgraded meaning they were running themselves out of time into a crisis. And each year that Britain got through the winter, nothing was learned. No lessons at all. They just used less and less and less. And now they're competing on a world market where I just think Britain is outgunned. I don't know how they're actually going to afford. I don't know whether they find their own people worth it for the prices they're going to have to pay for energy supplies. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just had um, Mirta Tripathi on to break down the, the soap opera of the EU green taxonomy. And she was saying just how consequential the final decision on nuclear will be. It seems like, I mean, in addition to the phase outs that are occurring, um, the kind of barriers that are being thrown up to investments in nuclear and nuclear being a potential way out of this crisis, as you're saying, not in the short term, but, you know, for, for medium or, or long term to avoid this happening again. Um, are you aware or sensing that this uh, energy crisis now is, is going to have an impact on the taxonomy decisions or on decision makers? Or, you know, they talk about with orthodoxies, you know, the, the leaders of those dogmas just need to die off before a new idea can come into being. What's your, what's your sense of, of the, the potential here in terms of finance and, uh, and getting a nuclear renaissance off the ground? On one, on, in a weird way, although the taxonomy... I, I myself would have said it was the most important thing in the world in July. I don't know how much it, all that stuff matters compared to brutal energy crisis. And I know I disagree with my European colleagues. They say, you don't understand, Mark. There are these very strict decarbonization targets. Um, and Europe will meet them because it's really important and we love laws and we're going to hit these targets. And that means we don't have enough energy and we're going to have to do nuclear. And on one hand, I'm like, yeah. I believe you're going to have to do nuclear, but I don't think it's going to be for decarbonization targets. You will keep decarbonization targets in the countries that have nuclear or get it built. You will need to get rid of those targets in the countries that don't or won't. Because in the end, that's the tail of the dog. It's not that... I think that I trust my sources that the that the decision on the taxonomy was moving in the correct direction before the real pain hit. Um, I think that the real pain may have been sufficient to get a turnaround. I, I don't know. Maybe that's, maybe that's um, giving uh, the folks in Brussels way too much credit to think that they would turn a ship around right before hitting an iceberg, um, if, even if they had time and they could see it. But it sounds like things were going well. My impressions have been that there was a desire to wait until the formation of a German government and the end of the elections, which has, which have passed before making the decision. I suspect it involves some significant amount of horse trading, like Nord Stream 2, for permission to include nuclear. 
I suspect it will do, have some face-saving mechanism where the Greens will get like a special named category for what nuclear is. And they'll try to probably put that, whatever the name they use, they'll probably try to put it in the natural gas pile. Um, I certainly know that countries like Norway are pushing very hard to include as much fossil fuels as possible as green because that's what they make their money off of. Um, you know, I like Norway. I like the Norwegians, but they are a practical and pragmatic people and they don't have any nuclear. So they've got to make sure that folks get the get the gas and the oil flowing still from from Norway. They just want to include targets to prioritize people buying Norwegian gas and oil. Whatever horse trading is required, I suspect it will be conducted and completed such that nuclear is in. It will probably be given some insulting name and some maybe even slightly insulting position compared to other green technologies that have a much worse environmental impact. That's Brussels for you. Um, but the longer it takes, I suspect the better it will look for nuclear because of how bad this winter is going to be. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, ultimately... Uh, you know, we're we're both involved in a nuclear advocacy movement. Uh, we're we're changing hearts and minds. Um, that's going to be important and and helpful in terms of the energy choices we make and hopefully a growing role for nuclear. But you yeah. know, ultimately, historically, what's got nuclear built has been pragmatics, has been you know the uh, the oil shock, OPEC crisis. Uh, you know, th I mean, I think that's probably one of the primary drivers beyond the initial U.S. buildout um, and memories of that. Uh, trickling through time in terms of some of the later builds, um, not to be too reductionist in the arguments here, but uh, you know, and that that was really my my sense of um, you know that that the the fracking revolution you know killed the there's other factors at play, but killed the nuclear renaissance to a degree. Obviously, and the other. and the incompetence at Vogel did not rest exactly from was, a miracle. Yeah, I was about to say that. Look at this. Look at this, Chris. Vogel is going to turn on in a world of $6 gas instead of $2 gas. And that's just different. That's anybody is going to walk. I mean, this is this is basically grasshopper and the ant stuff. You know, this children's story for those listeners who don't. I don't know what the what the where it's from. But one of the kids books that American kids grew up with is the grasshopper versus the ant, which is kind of a I don't know if traumatizing is a little overstating it, but it's a little bit of a rough tale for kids. It shows a little ant doing gardening and preparing, and it shows a grasshopper playing the fiddle and just hanging out and saying, yo, ant, you're working too hard. Why don't you take a break and come enjoy this beautiful weather with me? And the ant is like, no, I'm a good uh, Protestant work ethic uh, robot, and I must keep harvesting as much as possible. So then you get through the book and the grasshopper keeps asking the ant to just hang out and chill. And the ant keeps saying, no, I'm working really hard. And then finally at the end, depending on which version you have, either the ant is happy and gets food and the grasshopper dies in the winter, or the grasshopper uh, sort of begs forgiveness, is sorry for being lazy and comes in and plays the fiddle for the ant as the ant's food supply keeps everybody happy and fed. There we go. It's a, that, that's the happy ending. We have a situation here where the utilities that kept nuclear plants, the states that helped utilities keep nuclear plants, the states that, that did not intentionally murder the nuclear plants like New York and California are going to have an extraordinary advantage over the ones that did. And I mean both states in the US and states in Europe. A plant like Vogel now would be worth, sorry, Vogel, a plant like Fessenheim being online right now would be worth its weight in gold. You just, it's just, it'd be, in with the price of electricity and the direct substitution in a time of extremely low wind of just 
coal for nuclear or gas for nuclear, the nuclear plant shut down by by just irresponsible fools, basically fools. I use that specifically. It's kind of outmoded. People don't say fools very much anymore, but I I, I want to say it because it's just so incredibly unwise what people did. They were fiddling in the sun instead of farming, and now they are going to pay the price. Unfortunately, those who did so much of the anti-nuclear action are very, very cash-rich or coal-rich, and they will have the ability to outbid less fortunate countries for the remaining energy supplies. So it's like if the ant was able to stock up his supply of energy and then the grasshopper was like, actually, I'm actually pretty rich, so I can just buy your food and you'd better sell it. Um, <laughs> not exactly. I'm mixing up my metaphors, but I just, uh, I don't think that we will see Vogel as a mistake within a year or two. I don't think that we will, just like, honestly, we don't think of the awful cost over one runs at, say, the uh, last generation of nuclear plants to finish like the Texas units or the California units or the um, Vogel 1 and 2 took so long to build. So long. I bet they were way over budget, right? No one cares now. We may care if we're looking at what to invest in going forward. But um, I think that's enough of that. And we've talked about that in our other episodes. I think we should turn to pyramids and my worry about this this uh, potential degrowth spiral we may enter with, if we can't figure out how to invest in energy that replaces other energy. I mean, there's two things I got to hit in the last uh, few minutes of our of our recording here. Um, I want to transition from grasshoppers to pyramids, but in the middle, um, I just want to touch on a piece of news I, I just came across that uh, Japan has had an election and it looks like they're they're going to be doing a, a great big restart. Um, that I can imagine that has an impact. I think I was talking to Rod Adams and he was mentioning that the, the Fukushima induced, uh, shutdowns of the rest of the reactor fleet was resulting in, you know, import costs for fossil fuels in the range of 50 to hundred billion a year. Um, that seems like, you know, it's a change in political winds, but, uh, also just a big pragmatic issue here for Japan in terms of, uh, importing natural gas and other fossil fuels. I I'd want to check the prices. That sounds a little steep, but I would, I would check, um, Definitely, it'll be in the uh, like five to ten billion. I'll I'll check again. Like I said, well, whatever that number was, it's a lot higher now, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and so you're asking, what do we, what do we, what's happened in Japan, and what do we expect to see? Well, of the potential candidates for prime minister, uh, in other words, the selection of the leader of the Liberal Party, what we've seen is that the much more pro nuclear candidate was chosen. At this point, it's just a maturity issue. If you're a if you're a leader looking for office in any energy hungry country and you're anti nuclear, you're just a child. You're just basically an absolute. You're just not fit to lead other humans. You're not fit to be in office. Um, now, for those who got into office a few years back, where it seemed like energy was cheap and free and easy and, and just like taken for granted. Maybe that's just delayed development. We we it's too late. It's too early to judge. We have to see what the reactions are to the market screaming for anything that looks like not solar and wind. In, in other words, anything that can turn on and stay on when you order it to. That's what the markets are saying we're short on. Oh, and you know, the, is Japan going to be scared by uranium price booming? Absolutely not. Because the uranium, the price of uranium is only a tiny bit of the price of nuclear power. 
the uranium can double, triple, go 10x, and then the cost of nuclear only goes up a few percentage points. It's trivial. So are we going to see restarts? Well, it requires sort of local approval. It's just that local approval is also dependent on how necessary it's seen to sacrifice or give up something locally for the greater good. As the cost of imports goes up, especially if there's any rationing going on, the pressure, both internal and external, meaning local and outside of local areas, to restart nuclear plants and to enter a world of abundance and incredible prosperity instead of nursing the visions um, or the pain of the loss of trust of the Japanese nuclear industry, when those th two things are balanced, we're going to find that higher prices are going to lead to faster returns to service for Japanese reactors. Consensus will be found much faster in a world that's getting closer to power cuts for Japan. All right, Mark, lastly, you promised us pyramids. Hit it. Yeah, so um, there was this incredible multi-generational period where pyramids went from being kind of crumbly piles of stone all the way up to some of the most extraordinarily precise structures ever built, including today. And when it stopped for a bit, when the Nile started, the harvest started getting a little lower, when the food surplus has started to get a little lower, some combination of the interest of the court changing and the loss of the, the momentum from just building those pyramids made it to where they were never able to build again in anything like this, the size and engineering sophistication of what the pyramids were. And maybe that's okay. Maybe it's a huge colossal waste. Um, <laughs> We have a situation now where we are seeing the equivalent around the globe of the Nile dropping and the harvest getting smaller. Only this time, we only have ourselves to blame. It's our choice how much energy we want to have. We can build whatever nuclear we want, and then we just have energy, desalinating water, making fertilizer. For any of that, um, we can't blame it on climate change. It's our fault if we run out of energy. And I just like to say that I don't want to see 2020 or 2019 as a high water mark where people in developing countries could dream of a rich society in their own time, in their own land, or where people in rich countries could imagine not even just exceeding the standard of living of their parents, but merely maintaining. I just... We can't we can't accept 2019 as a high water mark. And that's why whatever comes out of this winter, we have got to stay optimistic. We've got to have some amount of grace um, and and courage to let in people who just two years ago, three years ago may have been saying, don't build nuclear. Do we need to make some brutal examples of a small number of them? Oh, for sure. It's really important for motivating the others and it's really important for showing that there is some form of justice in the world there will need to be a few um sacrifices but we don't need we don't need everyone because the like the the solution is very simple build as much nuclear as you can no break as much as you can and then you whittle it down a little if you accidentally overshoot and one way that whittle will it whittle it down is to build more transmission from your ultra-reliable nuclear to ultra-reliable demand. And that's like sort of the French option, except they went too far and they started destroying their fleet intentionally right into a power crisis. And I think that when we all come together in the, in the other side of this winter, 
we can come up with a with a vision that looks like something like for France, but bigger, where different major nuclear powers are helping the smaller countries, but also figuring out ways to build more in their own lands. And I think I think uh, that's going to keep me through the winter. You know, and it's it's sounding a little bit more reasonable than one you know than than a a move in that direction that's purely because of you know having changed minds or ideology. That's an important part of the picture, but ultimately, when the when the rubber hits the road, when energy prices go crazy, this is this is when exciting things happen in nuclear. Um, Mark, uh, it's a pleasure having you back. Thanks for making the time again. Um, I always love hearing you on other podcasts as well, so we'll keep an eye out for that episode with Robert Bryce. Um, and you were just on. Um, it was the Monopoly of Ideas. Is that what it's called? Uh, Narrative Monopoly, a new podcast, uh, sort of a. I don't. I don't know if I would say countercurrent or countercultural. It really, it's, um, it's like the new wave alt right or neo reactionary. Both labels that Jeff might reject, but I sure had a good time talking to somebody who had only thought about nuclear for the first time a few days before my podcast. It was. That it was, was honestly really interesting. Yeah, it was honestly a brilliant interview. Um, he's a great host. He he asked you some really great questions. Kept it rolling. Um, and you know, for my listeners uh, who are looking for, again, I think on an introductory level and on a, on a really kind of expert level, um, you did a really great job, Mark, in in kind of making a very expansive argument that was at the same time very granular and detailed. So people should definitely check out that podcast, and we'll link it in the show notes. Okay, Mark, thanks again for uh, for coming back, making time for decouple episode number eight. With All Mark right, Nelson. and do we do we do a sit down at COP from the Blues? Absolutely, yes, we will be broadcasting from COP. Um, we're gonna hopefully be following James Hansen around for half a day. Um, my filmmaker will be doing that and we will be broadcasting, I believe a nightly, uh, broadcast. I, we're, we're thinking we're going to call it, um, the, the cop out. Um, but we'll, we'll come up with a, with a good name for that anyway. Um, talk about pessimism. <laughs> am I, re- am I revealing Chris, some, uh, Chris, some you and I don't need here? to be pessimistic about whatever grim scenes we see in Glasgow. Because you are going to stay all warm. You're going to stay warm all winter from Pickering nuclear power, right? They're in Toronto. And I'm going to stay warm from the, uh, you know, the 70% of our power that comes from nuclear energy, of which 50% was from plants that were supposed to have closed already outside of Chicago that we saved. So we don't have room to be grumpy. Uh, I think we can have some optimism. Yeah. All right. It's a pact. The pact of optimism. All right, Mark. Thanks again. Great having you. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.